How much do you think about your theology? What you believe about God. What you believe about how you're supposed to act as a Christian. How you're supposed to react to the world around you. Do you apply your theology to your life? Or do you let your life govern your theology? And that's a big question. You see, our theology should guide us into the right thinking about what God would have us do. It's not what we think about the latest court ruling, and I wrote this before, but, you know, it's not how we feel about certain things based on the latest pop psychology, because there's a lot out there. It's not about the latest scientific discoveries, because science changes all the time. Darwin came up with evolution. And that was good science for, you know, 120 years or so. And then people started questioning it. Like, is this real? There's a lot of problems here. A guy wrote a book called Darwin's uh, Black Box, which kind of blew the whole thing apart. And although they still teach the theory in schools, it's not really viable anymore. They've come up with other things to cover it because they refuse to look at the Bible and apply theology. Our theology is not about the latest political thoughts and and trying to match them up somehow with a Bible verse that really doesn't mean anything towards it. And I see a lot of that on, on Facebook and Twitter and and all those other things. And our theology is not about our feelings. It's not what we feel. It's the facts that are presented in the word of God. Our theology should shape our thinking about our world and guide us to, to correct acting, thinking and acting. And as my Uncle Vern would often say, kid, you got to think biblically and act biblically. Wow, what a concept. He was a smart guy. And it's our the theology that moves us in that direction. It would be a shame if in the end we're standing firm on something God has condemned because we let our feelings overrun our theology. And there's a lot of people out there like that. We live in a world that is anti-Bible, anti-God, anti-Christian, and getting worse. Although we in this country have it pretty good. We haven't seen anything yet. But Jesus promised that we would have trouble in this world. And in other countries, you show up for a church service, and you can be thrown in jail, sent to a re-education camp. And there's no doubt at all that the Apostle Paul was the greatest theologian. He wrote 17 of the 27 books of the Bible, of the New Testament.
That's a lot. That might be 13. My mind might be failing me. I'm sure you can all relate in some way with that. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote great historical accounts of the earthly life of Jesus, including some significant theology. Luke and Matthew start with the events of the birth of Jesus Christ. Mark begins his gospel with the start of Jesus' ministry on earth. And then Luke follows up with a second book about the history of the early church, the first century. After praying last few weeks about what I've been teaching this week, and I'll be here next, um, the Lord put theology on my heart, and he put the book of John on my heart. Why? Because John's gospel contains a lot of theology. And we're going to be looking at some of that, not the whole book, obviously, but we're going to get maybe four verses in today. So I may be teaching John in 12 years from now as I substitute for Pastor Ian. But as I began to review the book, Ideas about the Bible had changed. You know, the internet can be a wonderful, wonderful thing, can it? Man, we can find stuff at a snap. But it's not like it used to be. I look up the authorship of John. Did John really write the book? Because you look, you know, the book of John in the Bible and was it authored by John? Was it not authored by John? I found articles like, uh, this is the title, um, John, written by Mary. I'm not kidding. And then I saw a whole bunch of articles about controversy. Did John actually write the book? It's nonsense. They seem to forget that it's a well-established fact. Polycarp, who was a friend of John and wrote into the second century, confirmed it as well as many of the other apostles confirmed it to Polycarp. And Irenaeus and, and various others. It's a fact. We know that John died sometime after A.D. 98. Only two more years, we're in the next century. And do you know John was the only one who didn't die a martyr's death? It wasn't without trying. They boiled him in oil one time. Um, and God saved him. After that, he was sent to Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation... And then when he was released from Patmos, he went to Ephesus and wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 
Why all the controversy? Because whether you're a scientist, whether you're an academic, whatever, the only way to be known is to have a paper printed. And the only way to have a paper printed is to come up with something new and exciting, something nobody's ever heard of. And so to get your 15 minutes of fame, you can say anything. It may be blasted. It may be people like it. And I say this because a lot of things have been casting doubt on the Bible, attacking Christianity. And that is not a good thing. The best thing we can do is to have good theology as a base. Don't let the great deceiver, the follower, the follower, the, the the maker of lies pull you into these traps. Why John? Why not Matthew? Well, folks from the late first and early second centuries indicated that Matthew was written in Aramaic or Hebrew which was the common language of the Hebrew people. It was written to them. Mark, he wrote his with explanations about what the Jews did to try to explain why they reacted in so many ways. And it was written for Gentile converts to Christianity. Luke, we were told, wrote in a very formal, well-educated classical Greek. Uh, to explain that a little bit better, uh, my wife, my lovely, beautiful wife, is from Chile. And they speak a very, very formal, upscale Spanish. People in California don't understand it. It's a different language almost. It's not just tomato and tomato. It's very different in its structure. But John wrote his book for the masses, for the people. The Greek he used was Koine Greek, and it was the language of the common folks at the time. The language of the ditch digger, the school teacher, the, the uh, guy at the grocery store. No, I'm bad bad example. The guy who sold vegetables on the street. And he did something the other three gospel writers did not do. He started his book not with the manger, not with the genealogies of the Jews that led up to Jesus being born. He started at the beginning. Well, when did the beginning start? Anybody have a good guess? The word. The book of Genesis, the word beginning is used at the start of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This was not the beginning of God. God is eternal. He has always existed, always will exist. As grandpa put it, always has been, always will be. 
And this phrase is the exact phrase John uses in his opening verse, in the beginning. How do we know? Because the Septuagint, which was, everybody know what the Septuagint was? Okay. That was the first Greek translation of the Old Testament. John used the same exact words for in the beginning as they did in the Septuagint. In the beginning, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son had already existed forever. That's a long time. Psalm 92 says this, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are Lord. So what, what came into being at the beginning? Time, space, and matter. Before that, no stars. You see in Genesis, God created the stars. The earth was out form or void. He, he put matter into place and time. God exists without time. God exists so he's looking at us in our past, he's looking at us in our now, and he's looking at us in our future at the same time. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's why he holds us in his hands, so to speak. He knows back here what's going to happen because he's already been there. And he knows back here how it's going to turn out because he's already there. I don't, I don't get it all. I can't conceive of it all. But there's going to be a time when I'm going to be in eternity, in eternity and maybe I'll have it figured out. So, in the beginning, our verse says, was the word. What is meant by word? Pop culture, you hear somebody say, word. I had no idea. I had to call my son and ask what that meant. Um, just meant it was an agreement. The Greek word that's used is logos, or logos, depending on whether you're from Southern Greek or Northern Greek. I don't, I don't know. Um, I was in Central Greek, and I got both when I was there. Greek reformist scholar John MacArthur says it's the impersonal abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. That's what this word means. It was in some sense a creative force and also the source of all wisdom. And the average Greek may not have understood the, the complete depth of that as the Greek philosophers did, but even to the layman, Mark Arthur goes on, the term would have signified one of the most important principles in the universe. And the way they looked at it was, is in, in order to do anything, you have to have a thought about doing it. 
And then to do something, you have to build whatever it is that thought was. And Logos could do all of it. And so to the Greeks, this personification, this making Logos, the word, a real thing, a physical thing you could touch, was just kind of mind-blowing. To the Jews, they were familiar with it. The Abrahamic covenant, the Ten Commandments, all that came from the word of God. And they had a similar concept. And note that it doesn't say the word came into being. It says in the beginning was the word. It was already there. And then John builds on that revelation, which a Greek who, you know, was just sitting around, hey, look at this letter, it's pretty cool, would be reading it over and over, trying to grasp that concept. In the beginning was the word. And then John goes on to say, and the word was with God. The Greek is proston theon. And it means kind of two people having a conversation, having an intimate relationship, like me and my best friend Mike there. All right, we won't use Mike. Uh, Mike is a great neighbor, and I love him. He's really good. Uh, MacArthur, again, he says, from all eternity, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity was with the Father in deep, intimate fellowship. And the Greeks are going, oh, this is heavy, man. This is a lot to take in. The word is a person, not an attribute of God. It's not something that just kind of emanates from him. He is of the same essence as the Father. Now, I know we're talking theology 101, but sometimes it's good to go back and look at these details. The next portion of our verse, and the word was God. Now, the Greeks sitting there reading this, the word was God, his mind would go boom. would have made a non-believing reader set the letter down and think. Because we don't think too much about what we read today. We just kind of read it, blow by it, and move on to the next thing, right? They thought about what they read. They didn't read a phrase and then go turn the TV on and watch Gladiators or something. They thought about it. And this was so clear, even a child reading it wouldn't be confused. It would take from the first century to the 1850s for somebody to really foul that up. Whereas one guy said it would take a Jehovah Witness to confuse this passage. 
because their translation says the word was a God. You see, the theology was not correct. The theology was based on what they wanted. They wanted to change things to suit them. They have a very twisted view of who Jesus is. And it's probably worse with our Mormon neighbors. Who will tell you they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they will tell you Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But it's a different Jesus to them. For example, our theology tells us we are children of God because this is what the Bible says. 1 John 3.10, this is evident. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil because of what they do? And Philippians 5.15 says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. But according to Mormon theology, Jesus was a created being. Don't laugh. Try not to laugh. Okay, laugh if you want. But according to them, he was the first spirit to be born of God and an outer space mother. Some celestial mom. Kind of a Star Trek story, you know? Just out of nowhere. And therefore, Jesus could not be the eternal God or part of the eternal trinity. Mormons also teach that both the Father and Son are men with bodies of flesh and bone as two separate people. Therefore, they can't be one. No such thing as a trinity. Uh, They also teach that Jesus was many of God's sons. Guess who the most famous other son in Mormon theology was? Satan. Lucifer. He's just one of the kids, man. A juvenile delinquent. Got a little bit sideways. Not only that, do you know why there's so many stars and planets and things out there? Because everyone who is a good Mormon and goes on to wherever they go you can get your own planet. You can have your own kids with all your celestial wives. And you can start the whole thing over again. Enough of that nonsense. Is anybody familiar with the first chapter of Genesis? Genesis 1.26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Plural. Who is included in being plural? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After our image and our likeness. The word Elohim, which is used there, is a plural word. If you want to talk about God in, he, in Hebrew, you just say El. El Shaddai, we've heard that. 
If you want to make it plural, it's Elohim. Why is this so important for us to know? Because we come across some of the weirdest ideas when we talk to people. What do you believe about God? Well, man, I don't know. He's up there and does whatever. Know your theology. Start at the beginning. What we believe is is none of this is made up. None of this is let's make a new religion so we can have power over people and make them follow this weird trap. We need to allow the Bible, the Holy Word of God, to set our theology, and then we need to apply that theology to the rest of our lives, not the other way around. There's a lot of talk about politics and this and that. Let your theology set your views. It's not what you want it to be, it's what God says. Okay, let's get to verse 2. Okay? He was in the beginning with God. Consider the prayer known as the high priestly prayer found in John 17, where Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before, and the Greek word is cosmos, existed. In your Bibles, it's translated world. But the Greek word is cosmos. Wow. Before anything existed. Jesus said he was with the Father before creation. Not a created being, but but with God, part of God, second person of the Trinity. And then verse 3, and this one always blows me away. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made by who? By the Word. By Jesus Christ, who divested himself of all that godly power and came to earth to talk to us. That is incredible. Not just present creation, but creation was made by him. The beginning was made by him. The Greek word genomi means we're made through him. So you can't convolute that and make it mean something else. Made through him. And since the Bible says it, I believe it. I'll compare whatever scientific thing you want to put up. I'll deal with evolution. I'll deal with you with, you know, the earth is 14 billion years old. And then we go to, no, no, the earth is 4 billion years old. No, the earth is this. The Bible says how, how old the earth is. 
when the beginning was. And it wasn't all that long ago, folks. If you go by what the Bible says. Now, it doesn't say it outright, but you follow all the lineages and the genealogies and all that kind of stuff, and you can get to that point, which we can discuss at another time. He made the stars, the galaxies, the mountains, the weather. A few things he made I have questions about. If I was him, I would not have made mosquitoes. Right? Ticks. Brussels sprouts. Rattlesnakes. Let's start a prayer petition. What else could we have gone without? You know? He made them. And it wasn't was just John who said this. Paul said it in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He said, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. Scientists still can't tell you what holds atoms together. You got protons and neutrons, and now they're trying to figure out smaller things mathematically. They don't know what holds them together. The Bible tells us God does, Jesus does. All things consist through His power. This belief is at the center of our theology of who Jesus actually was. In 2 John, John warned, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked deeds. And some versions say, basically, and you're working for the devil. Wow. One of the greatest warnings we could have about making sure our theology is correct. So, what does God call us to do? What does Jesus call us to do? I don't have time today to go into it, but if you study it very carefully, you're going to find 55 direct commandments of Jesus Christ to his followers. Does that mean we need to be perfect, Adam? No, he didn't design us that way. We all fail on occasion. 
I fail a lot. I'll blame it on George Barnes. He always takes me out and gets me doing things that we shouldn't be doing or something. I don't know. No, George doesn't do that. Tom does. <laughs> I love this church and I love the men in this church. It's awesome. Some of the basics repent of our sins, have grace and mercy and forgiveness for other people. Live in peace. Live with brotherhood. Go to the second mile. Love our enemies. Honor marriage. Put God first. Lots of those things. We live in a world that's fallen apart, folks. And it seems like through various areas, it just falls apart in one area and then moves on to the next. One of the greatest, awesomest countries for Christians used to be China 100 years ago. A little more than 100 years ago. Look at it now. Caught with the Bible, it's a re-education camp or it's death. I have a friend who lives here in Visalia, used to go to church with him. His name is Craig Price. He used to smuggle Bibles into countries where they were forbidden. Knowing that if he got caught, it would be death in that country. Because he had more than one. He would drive up to the checkpoint. He'd be praying like crazy. The guy with him would be praying like crazy. And the guards would come out and they'd come out with a drill bit about this long. And they would drill holes in the side of the car and see if paper came out of the doors or the undercarriage or whatever. They'd open up the tires and make sure there were no Bibles hidden inside the tires. I pray we never get to that kind of a point. But it happens. But God is mighty. And he takes care of his own. And in those situations where people are being persecuted for their faith and death is threatened, they look at death and go, cool, I can go home now. That should be our attitude. God will take care of us. We're going to be with him in eternity. 